We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. It looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Moore, good bad yet. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 60 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy Four with James McDivitt and Edward White. The success of Gus Grissom and John Young's Jiminy Three flight paved the way for long-duration space flights. The longest U.S. manned space flight to date was Gordon Cooper's 34-hour Mercury flight. The Soviets, however, had four long-duration flights to their credit ranging from 70 to 119 hours. It was now time for the U.S. to attempt a long-duration flight, which brings us to Gemini 4. The basic flight plan for Gemini 4 was created in April of 1963, over two years before the launch. This flight plan was a little too optimistic. Slow fuel cell development forced the Gemini Projects Office in August 1964 to settle for four days in space rather than seven. And the practice rendezvous with the evaluation pod had to be scrubbed as well. But in exchange for these losses, there were some additions to the flight plan. Early in March 1965, NASA revised the flight plan and added two extra components. One of the new objectives was to attempt to maintain a fixed distance from the second stage of the spacecraft's Titan II launch vehicle. This task, which would provide practice for future rendezvous missions, was assigned to the command pilot. The pilot on the flight was slated to perform an extravehicular activity, EVA. Originally, it was planned just to open the hatch and stand up while remaining in the capsule, but on March 18, 1965, Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first man to venture outside the relative safety of his spacecraft to float in space for 10 minutes while attached to the Voskhod 2 by means of a 10-foot tether. The U.S. wanted to at least match this feat. This would require a newly developed suit and a special handheld unit which would allow the astronaut to propel himself while performing maneuvers outside the spacecraft. When the original flight plan was introduced, the suit and the self-propulsion unit were still on the drawing board. In fact, the gear was not certified for use in space until 10 days before the Gemini 4 launch, and the EVA itself was not officially confirmed until one week before the scheduled launch. Nonetheless, although a Russian had been the first to float in space, the U.S. was determined to be the first to use jet propulsion to actually maneuver an astronaut in space. Here's a clip on the suit. 
A special EVA suit and life support pack had been designed and tested by NASA engineers in the Crew Systems Division. The EVA helmet has three visors. The inner visor is the normal suit visor, which seals in suit pressure. Over it are two special visors. They are detachable and need not be worn throughout the entire mission. The outer or sun visor is easily recognized from its gold coating. It reflects both visible light and infrared rays. With it attached, only 10% of the sun's visible light is admitted. Beneath the sun visor, but not visible here, is an inner protective visor made of polycarbonate plastic. The Gemini suit has layers of aluminized mylar, nylon, and felt. In combination, they protect the astronaut against temperature and space particles. Special overgloves are worn to guard against extremes of space temperature if the astronaut should grasp the spacecraft during EVA. As the astronaut leaves Gemini, he is attached by a supporting umbilical line, 25 feet long. The umbilical is actually one assembly consisting of three elements, a nylon tension line, electrical wiring, and an umbilical line. The nylon line, or tether, is shorter than the umbilical line. It takes all loads exerted during EVA and can withstand 1,000 pounds of pull. The electrical wiring enables the astronaut to maintain direct communication with his command pilot. It also records biomedical readings for ground surgeons. The umbilical line furnishes oxygen to the suit from the spacecraft's primary oxygen system. The life support pack mounted on the parachute harness contains an emergency oxygen bottle. If the umbilical line should fail, the astronaut would have enough oxygen to support him for at least nine minutes, more than enough time for him to return to the spacecraft safely in an emergency. The pilot also carries a small maneuvering unit during EVA, the so-called space gun. Designed by NASA engineers of the Flight Crew Support Division, the gun provides a limited amount of thrust from compressed oxygen for basic maneuvering experiments. Another first for this mission was the new Mission Control Center in Houston would assume flight control duties for Gemini 4, taking over that job from the former control center at Cape Kennedy. Now let's move on to the astronauts. On July 24, 1964, NASA announced the crews for Gemini 4. James A. McDivitt was selected command pilot, and Edward H. White II was selected as pilot. Frank Borman and James Lovell were selected as the backups. Now here's a clip on the astronauts. James A. McDivitt. Flying to him was no boyhood passion. He came to it late. He had managed to win nine medals flying 145 combat missions in Korea. Edward H. White II. Tall and thin, Ed White has the stern glance of a medieval saint and the bubbling spirits of a kid with a new bike. The man selected as command pilot, James McDivitt, was born in 1929 in Chicago, Illinois. He graduated from Central High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In January of 1951, McDivitt entered the Air Force as an aviation cadet. He received his pilot's wings and commission as a second lieutenant in May 1952 at Williams Air Force Base, Arizona. He completed combat crew training in November of 1952. He then went to Korea, where he flew 145 combat missions in F-80 and F-86 aircraft with the 35th Bombardier Squadron during the Korean War. 
He returned to the U.S. in September 1953 and served as pilot and assistant operations officer with the 19th Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Dow Air Force Base, Maine. In November 1954, McDivitt entered the Advanced Flying School at Tyndale Air Force Base, Florida, and in July 1955, he went to McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, where he served as pilot, operations officer, and later as flight commander with the 332nd Fighter Interceptor Squadron. He returned to school in June 1957 at the University of Michigan under the Air Force Institute of Technology program and received his Bachelor's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering in 1959. In June of 59, McDivitt went to Edwards Air Force Base, California as a student test pilot. He remained there with the Air Force Flight Test Center as an experimental flight test pilot. He completed the U.S. Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School and joined the Manned Spacecraft Operations Branch in July 1962. By that time, he had logged more than 4,500 hours flying time with more than 3,500s in a jet aircraft. He flew as a chase pilot for Robert M. White's historic X-15 flight on July 17, 1962, in which White reached an altitude of 95.8 kilometers and became the first to be awarded astronaut wings based on the U.S. Air Force definition of space at 80 kilometers. In September of 1962, McDivitt was selected as an astronaut by NASA as part of the Astronaut Group 2. When he was chosen as command pilot of Gemini 4, he became the first U.S. astronaut to command his first space flight. Now let's consider the pilot of Gemini 4. Edward Higgins White II was born on November 14, 1930 in San Antonio, Texas. His father, Edward White I, was a West Point graduate who served in the U.S. Air Force. His father was known as a pioneer in aeronautics, beginning his military career by flying U.S. Army balloons. As the years went by and more emphasis was placed on powered flights, White's father switched to flying powered aircraft. By the time he retired from the Air Force, White's father had earned the rank of Major General. White's parents instilled a variety of personal qualities in their son. They taught him the value of self-discipline, persistence, and single-minded dedication. They also modeled to him the importance of seasoning such a highly focused life with a good dose of laughter and fun. White learned his lessons well and successfully used these qualities throughout his personal and professional life. At the age of 12, when most other boys were flying model airplanes, Ed went up in an old T-6 trainer with his father. It was an experience he would long remember. Even though he was barely old enough to strap on a parachute, his father allowed him to take over the controls of the plane. Ed recalled that it felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. Rather than experiencing a crippling sense of fear, the 12-year-old boy displayed a sense of calm confidence which was the product of the main lesson his parents had taught him. Set a goal, believe you can achieve it, and then work to accomplish it. Since Ed's father was a career military officer, 
The family moved numerous times to various Air Force bases around the country. As a result, Ed learned to adjust to new situations, people, and places. Ed was considered to be a very good student and an excellent athlete in whatever school he attended. In fact, the constant shuffling from one Air Force post to another did not create any major difficulties for White until he was enrolled in Western High School in Washington, D.C. Once he began researching the admission policies at his college of choice, the lack of continuous residency presented an obstacle. The White family had a long and proud history of service in various branches of the military. In addition to his father's career in the Air Force, two of Ed's uncles had solid careers in the Army and Marines. West Point had graduated two members of the White family, and there never seemed to be any question that Ed would go there too. But most military families don't have a permanent residence, so he didn't have a congressman to appoint him to the academy. White knew that he would need to be sponsored as an at-large appointee if he was going to follow in his father's and uncle's footsteps and attend West Point. In order to obtain the coveted appointment, Ed would go up and down the halls of Congress knocking on doors and finally knocked on enough doors to get an appointment. Following his high school graduation, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point opened its doors to Edward H. White II, the newest member of the White clan to walk down its hallowed halls. While attending West Point, White continued to perform in both academics and athletics. He starred as a halfback on the soccer team. He made the track team as a hurdler and set a West Point record in the 400-meter hurdles. He barely missed getting a spot on the 1952 U.S. Olympic track team. He devoted himself to an established daily regiment for maintaining physical fitness, which kept his 5-foot-11-inch frame in superb condition. Ed always made time for activities other than studying and training for athletic competitions. While attending a football weekend at West Point, he met his future wife, Patricia Eileen Finnegan. In 1952, White graduated from West Point with a Bachelor of Science degree and enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. After receiving flight instructions, he earned his wings. Soon afterwards, he was transferred to Germany. While serving abroad, White established himself as an accomplished pilot by flying F-86 Sabrejets as well as the newer F-100 fighter jets. In addition, White successfully completed the Air Force Survival School in Bad Tolz, Germany. Then, in 1957, Ed White read an article that described the role of future astronauts. The article was written with tongue-in-cheek, but something told him this was the type of work that he was cut out for. From then on, everything he did seemed to be preparing him for spaceflight. The fact of the matter was that at that moment, Ed White decided that becoming an astronaut was his newest goal, and he carefully planned his future activities in order to achieve that goal. After serving for three and a half years in Germany, White returned to the U.S. with his wife and two children, Edward and Bonnie Lynn. By this time, Ed was convinced that an advanced degree would give him an edge over the other men against whom he would be competing for a spot on the roster of astronauts.
Therefore, he enrolled in a graduate program at the University of Michigan. He received his M.S. degree in aeronautical engineering in 1959. That same year, NASA selected its original seven astronauts for Project Mercury. With their selection, it became clear that test pilot credentials would be prerequisite for those seeking to become part of the astronaut corps. Accordingly, White enrolled in the Air Force Test Pilot School at California's Edwards Air Force Base. He received his test pilot credentials in 1959 and was transferred to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, where he was assigned as an experimental test pilot in the Aeronautical Systems Division. While at Wright-Patterson, White made flight tests for research and weapons system development, wrote technical engineering reports, and made recommendations for improvement in aircraft design and construction. By the time White was serving as a test pilot in Ohio, the seven Project Mercury astronauts were immersed in training. One of the most crucial training exercises was designed to prepare them for the weightlessness which they would experience during spaceflight. Three planes were used to provide the astronauts with brief periods of weightlessness. The Air Force C-131, C-135, and F-100F. Ed White piloted several of these flights. Two of his passengers were John Glenn and Deke Slayton, who were practicing weightless flying for Project Mercury. Two other passengers of his were Ham and Enos, the chimps that went up before the astronauts. As Project Mercury was coming to a successful close and Project Gemini began to emerge, it became clear that an additional group of astronauts would be required to meet the goals of the Intermediate Space Program. In April 1962, NASA began recruiting. Most of the basic requirements remained the same. NASA was looking for male test pilots who had extensive flight experience in jet aircraft. Candidates needed to possess at least a bachelor's degree in engineering or one of the physical sciences. However, the maximum age limit was reduced from 40 to 35 and the maximum height was increased from 5 feet 11 inches to 6 feet. Additionally, civilian test pilots would be eligible to apply. As with Project Mercury, candidates completed numerous physical and psychological tests. In September 1962, the final selection was made and NASA added its newest members to the roster of astronauts. Air Force Captain Edward H. White II, who liked to set high goals and then drive for them, reached his goal by edging out over 200 other applicants to win the title of astronaut. After being selected as part of the second group of astronauts, Ed White and his family followed the trend and moved to Texas to be near the future manned space center. White had seen the rousing parades and media blitz which surrounded the Project Mercury astronauts and their families, but he was not prepared for the attention he and his friend, Jim McDivitt, would receive upon their arrival in Houston. As he made final arrangements for the purchase of his home, neighborhood children started to gather nearby. The youngsters asked him if he was an astronaut. As soon as they received an affirmative reply, the kids ran up and down the street yelling, Astronauts are in the house! 
When McWhite and McDivitt came out, the children asked for their autographs. After obliging, both expressed surprise that anyone would want their autograph because they hadn't done anything yet. White looked upon himself as a member of a team, as an engineering cog in a vast technical program, rather than a hero to be followed around. Additionally, he just barely had been selected. Autographs and attention seemed out of place and premature. Once they were formally part of the program, the nine new men were sized up fairly quickly by their seven predecessors. All members of the second group were judged to be highly skilled pilots. It was also evident that, at, on the average, the second group had a greater level of formal education than the original Mercury astronauts. Nonetheless, even among a group of high achievers, Ed White stood out among the crowd. He was seen as a man who, when asked an intelligent question, would answer thoughtfully and to the point, but would rarely volunteer information. The old hands from Project Mercury picked him as the guy to watch. In September of 1962, Gus Grissom was assigned to supervise the new recruits. Grissom gave credit where credit was due in his evaluation of the newcomers. Grissom said, quote, They're all talented. In fact, when one of them comes up with a new answer for some problem, I think they're a lot smarter than our original group of seven. End quote. However, it was made crystal clear from day one that because no one in the second group had trained specifically for spaceflight, let alone flown in space, they were the new kids on the block. On one occasion, Grissom crisply advised one youngster, quote, Don't feel so smart. You're just an astronaut trainee. End quote. Bolstered by the information and experience gained in Project Mercury, NASA adopted a new training program which was more advanced, refined, and rigorous than previous spaceflight preparations. Ed White and his fellow trainees soon found themselves participating in a variety of exercises designed to anticipate Project Gemini. Training began by familiarizing the new members of the astronaut corps with details gathered from Project Mercury. They gained hands-on experience with the Mercury spacecraft system and hardware. They learned about flight operations and associated in-flight tasks. They toured the facilities at Cape Kennedy, including the tracking systems and launch areas. And Titan, Atlas, Agena, and Saturn became part of their vocabulary as they became familiar with the various boosters associated with the space program. Formal classroom instruction was an integral part of the Gemini training so that astronauts would be able to do scientific tasks and talk intelligently with Ph.D. scientists in every field. Thus, White and McDivitt, along with the rest of the astronauts, participated in intensive training in the fields of physics, geology, anatomy and physiology, astronomy, meteorology, aerodynamics, flight mechanics, guidance and navigation, mathematics, and communications. The educational component proved to be taxing even for a group of men whose IQ level averaged out to approximately 135. After completing the required classroom instruction, each of the Gemini astronauts was assigned to specialize in a particular aspect of spaceflight, 
This allowed each astronaut to be directly involved in an integral part of engineering development. In addition, because of the vast number of tasks associated with the Gemini program, this specialization encouraged excellent time management practices. By delegating areas of responsibility throughout the entire astronaut corps, the agency was able to reduce drastically the amount of time required to cover the entire operating system adequately. Through the effective use of briefings, staff meetings, and conferences, all members of the team could stay well informed about all areas of program and systems operations, regardless of their area of specialization. Even with effective delegation of tasks, Ed felt that the day wasn't long enough to do everything he would like to. White was assigned to specialize in the design and development of spacecraft flight control systems and related equipment. White thoroughly enjoyed his specialty area because it involved the pilot's own touch, the human connection between the spacecraft and the way the pilot maneuvers it. The so-called pilot touch was extremely important to Ed White as a test pilot. He clearly understood that a marriage between man and machine was absolutely necessary in order to achieve the goal of reaching the moon. However, he stood equally convicted that the important thing is that man, not an automatic machine, was the primary system in spaceflight. One of the biggest frustrations that Ed encountered during training, however, did involve the mechanical aspect of the pilot's touch. Each of the simulators was equipped with a different kind of hand control stick. As a result, Ed found that the astronauts needed to devote portions of their training time simply to adjust to each control stick and get the feel of it. White judged this to be a misuse of precious time and began campaigning for a controller that was basically similar for all vehicles in the program. It seemed inconceivable to him that, as some people had suggested, an astronaut would fly toward the moon in the Apollo using one kind of stick, then climb into a lunar landing craft and use a different kind of controller to land him on the moon. White's persistence paid off with the creation of a type of controller that he believed could be used in all of the vehicles. Survival training also played an important part in the Gemini training program. Astronauts were drilled in handling potential crisis on both land and sea. They learned how to leave a sinking capsule and successfully use a life raft in case they encountered an emergency after splashdown. In addition, they became skilled in techniques which would help them survive in the unlikely event that their spacecraft landed on the ground instead of the ocean. Ed White and his colleagues learned how to fashion clothing from parachutes which would protect them from the intense heat of the Nevada desert. They were dropped in pairs from helicopters into the depths of the steamy Panamanian rainforest where cooked iguana, roasted boa constrictor, and palm hearts were the daily lunch-in specials. Keeping in excellent physical condition was a top priority for the Gemini astronauts as well. This focus merely reinforced Ed White's lifelong commitment to maintaining his physical health and strength. In spite of his busy training schedule, Ed continued to participate in swimming, handball, volleyball, squash, and golf. 
he began his day with at least a one-mile run. Rather than driving from his home to the Man Space Center in Houston, White often opted to bicycle the three-mile stretch. While jogging, White liked to squeeze a hard rubber ball in order to increase the strength in his hands and arms. He installed a 40-foot climbing rope in the backyard of his home and tackled it on regular occasions. He could knock off 50 sit-ups and 50 push-ups without a whimper. Without a doubt, Ed White was considered to be the most physically fit of all the astronauts in the Corps. A less obvious area of astronaut training was public relations. Many of the men felt uncomfortable speaking in public. However, on occasion, often without warning, the astronauts would be asked to speak to employee gatherings, often impromptu affairs held right on the production line. Knowing that public speaking was considered part of the job, Ed White joined the Toastmasters International to improve his public communication skills. At one point, Ed served as vice president and secretary for the organization. After months of training, White learned that he and Jim McDivitt were selected to fly on Gemini 4. White and McDivitt were well-matched, and their personal and professional lives often had uncanny parallels. Both were married to women named Pat. Both were captains in the Air Force. Both had earned degrees in aeronautical engineering at the University of Michigan in 1959. While Ed was pursuing a master's degree, Jim was studying for his bachelor science degree. Both had completed test pilot training at Edwards Air Force Base. Both had responded to NASA's call for additional astronauts in 1962, and both had been selected as part of the second group of astronauts in September of that same year. While McDivitt and White, aged 35 and 34, had known each other since college, Borman and Lovell, both 36, met when they were undergoing testing by NASA. Borman was an Air Force officer and Lovell was in the Navy. Their first task after their selection was to review the status of the spacecraft and booster assigned to their mission. Spacecraft 4 was still being built in St. Louis, with some problems caused by a shortage of parts. In Baltimore, Gemini Launch Vehicle 4, GLV-4, was also in the process of being assembled. After that quick look, the crewmen spent the next five weeks cleaning up work left over from their former assignments. Mission training had to wait until the end of November when Gemini Simulator 2 became operational in Houston. Meanwhile, McDivitt and his crewmates at the time, in July of 1964, were not certain that EVA would be included in Gemini 4, so they seized every chance to press the case for making it part of their mission. This persistence won NASA management's consent to provide the special spacesuits that an EVA required. You see, in the Gemini program, the astronauts were not merely chauffeurs, they, their role in the program went far beyond that of the normal test pilot in determining what was to be done and when. Without the strong 
pressure from the Gemini 4 crewman, the G4C suit might have been too far down the line to have permitted NASA's late decision to include an EVA in the fourth mission. That decision was not, however, quite so late as it appeared. When cosmonaut Alexei Leonov walked in space on March 18, 1965 during the Voskhod 2 mission, he revived press complaints that America lagged in the space race and raised fears that a year might pass before a Gemini astronaut matched the Russian feat. When a little more than two months later, NASA announced that White would step into space on the next Gemini flight and use a zip gun to propel himself, most space watchers merely assumed that NASA was still trying to keep up with its Soviet rival. This may have been true as far as timing was concerned, but EVA had been part of the Gemini thinking almost from the beginning, and studies had begun as early as 1962. The road from study to a place in the flight plan, however, was a rocky one. Even the public linking of EVA with Gemini 4 preceded Voskhod 2 by nearly eight months. At the same press conference in July 1964, where the Gemini 4 crew took their bow, Gemini deputy manager Kenneth Klanknick had said one of the crew might open the hatch and stick his head out during the mission. McDivitt was surprised at how little notice newsmen took of Klanknick's statement. At that point, it was still far from certain that even a simple hatch opening would be permitted in Gemini 4. The key questions involved equipment and training. Gemini 4 first appeared as the program's lead-off EVA in January of 1964 in a document called Program Plan for Gemini Extravehicular Operation. But management response was cool largely because equipment development was only beginning. During the next four months, however, matters improved. The AI Research Manufacturing Company was awarded a contract for the extravehicular chest pack. The David Clark Company was sent specifications for the extravehicular suit, and McDonnell was authorized to begin an EVA design that was eventually applied to Spacecraft 6. After Klanknick's largely ignored statement in July of 1964 on stand-up EVA plans for Gemini 4, the issue continued to be debated within NASA. MSC's Engineering and Development Directorate and its Crew Systems Division in particular opposed any EVA in Gemini missions until crew faced some realistic simulations on the ground. The scheduled altitude chamber test of Spacecraft 3 in November 1964 offered a good chance to meet that demand. Gus Grissom and John Young wanted to depressurize the cabin during their training for Gemini 3 and open the hatch at a simulated altitude of 46,000 meters. Selling this idea to McDonnell was not easy. McDonnell, as Young later remarked, quote, certainly didn't want to take the chance of bagging a couple of astronauts in the altitude chamber, end quote. 
and NASA was none too happy about submitting astronauts to vacuum with nothing more than a spacesuit made by the seamstress at the David Clark Company. Kleinknecht argued that if we can't do it in the altitude chamber, then we haven't any business doing it 160 kilometers in space. As a result, the Jiminy Project office told McDonnell to include at least one complete depressurization, hatch opening and closing, and repressurization cycle at 12,000 meters altitude condition in each spacecraft manned altitude chamber test, commencing with Spacecraft 3. The first try at EVA practice left something to be desired. When Young opened the hatch, he could not close it back. But the 3-orbit Gemini 3 mission was really too short for EVA anyway, and the Gemini Project Office focused its effort on Gemini 4. Plans were firmer by the start of 1965, and the Gemini 4 crews began training for EVA. Nevertheless, the decision of whether to include EVA in the mission was far from settled, either at MSC or NASA headquarters. MSC Director Robert Gilruth did approve altitude chamber test for the crew, but only on March 12, 1965, less than a week before Leonov's spacewalk. That feat spurred new effort to get extravehicular activity into an early Gemini mission. With the flight of Gemini 3 just a week away, that meant Gemini 4. During that week, between Voskhod 2 and Gemini 3, Gilruth and Deputy Director George Lowe had their first look at a handheld maneuvering unit, which had been designed and built without any fanfare in MSC's Crew Systems Division. That device, along with a display of the progress with other EVA equipment, brought the center's top management solidly behind trying for an EVA on Gemini 4. The hardware still needed to be qualified. Gilruth gave the job to crew systems with a warning to keep the work as quiet as possible, perhaps to avoid any appearance of a knee-jerk reaction to Russian accomplishments. A model spacecraft was quickly installed in MSC's 6-meter vacuum chamber, and preliminary testing was begun. By the end of April, the vacuum chamber was ready for full-scale EVA simulation, and flight operations people had come to the picture to begin working out techniques for handling EVA as a flight control matter. But NASA headquarters had yet to be won over. Manned spaceflight chief George Mueller learned about the MSC plans when he visited Houston on April 3rd. His response was lukewarm, perhaps because of the still unqualified status of the hardware. Although he offered no encouragement, Mueller was not inclined to order a halt, and MSC went ahead with its plans. On May 14th, when Gilruth arranged an EVA demonstration for Associate Administrator Robert Siemens, he won a high-ranking ally. Siemens promised to discuss EVA with Administrator James Webb and his deputy, Hugh Dryden. The next day, Matthews and three of his men were in Washington for another attempt to convince Mueller that EVA belonged on Gemini 4. 
Mueller's crucial question was how EVA, not officially scheduled until Gemini 6, could be moved up two flights. The answer was simply that everything was ready. All EVA gear was qualified, or nearly so, and the crew was trained. After he got back to Houston, Matthews called Mueller on May 19th to report that the last piece of EVA equipment was now flight ready. Siemens, as he had promised, did describe the EVA plan for Gemini 4 to Webb and Dryden. Webb liked it, but Dryden objected strongly. He thought it looked too much like a reaction to what the Soviets had done. Eventually, Webb overruled Dryden, and the EVA was approved. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.